there and welcome to the rewrap for Monday. All the best bits from the Mike Hosking Breakfast on News Talk ZB in a sillier package. I am Glenn ZB and this morning um, we've got some OCR predictions. It's just like the GDP predictions. I'm sure they'll be absolutely accurate. Polling? Yes, polling. I know the election's next year, but we've got polling. Uh, is sports scheduling sexist? Uh, but before any of that, finally, finally, somebody wants to do something about getting people onto their ADHD meds. Why is it so hard? Might I congratulate Chloe Swarbrick, and I don't do that every day on the program, but she wrote a very good piece uh, in, in the Sunday paper over the weekend. Uh, she's been diagnosed with ADHD, and if you don't know anything about ADHD, it's the way it's structured and run in this country is astonishingly useless. And she's encountered that with her diagnosis, of course. Access to medication is a mental gymnasium designed for people with ADHD to fail. So they've built, she describes, a sometimes insurmountable process. Let me work you through what you have to do to deal with ADHD in this country. A sometimes insurmountable process to access the very medication that would help assist the executive function in the first place. The executive function is reference to her ADHD. You have to get a psychiatrist to issue a special authority. Then you have to get your psychiatrist to issue the script or send information to your GP. You then have to contact them every time you need it renewed, which is every month. You have to pick up your medication within seven days of the script being sent to the pharmacist. Every two years, you have to go back to the hundreds of dollars a half-hour psychiatrist to confirm that your ADHD hasn't evaporated and you still need treatment. The rigmarole for that, what I've just described, is unique to ADHD. We do it for no other medication in this country. Astonishing, isn't it? And this all came out of 1997 when the Ministry of Health created guidelines for diagnosis and treatment of ADHD, the health minister at the time, a bloke called English from Southland, responded to what uh, she described as media panic and political pressure about ADHD prescription medication apparently washing our streets. It's one of, the, one of those sort of urban myth-type debates that we had at the time, and I remember it well, and that was there is no ADHD, uh, it's just bad parenting. Get your kid under control and you'll be fine. That's the sort of brain power we brought to that particular discussion. Fast forward 2022, ADHD NZ. Listen to this bit. This will blow your mind. ADHD NZ reports that there are no specialists available in the public system to diagnose or prescribe for adult ADHD in the entire South Island. Not one. So you've got to go to the specialist. That's what the rules say. You've got to go to the specialist, but there isn't one. That's the system we're running in this country. It's incredible. They recommend, by the way, it's easier to fly to Sydney if you can afford it. So anyway, here's the point of the story. The good part of the story uh, is that one in 20 New Zealanders, by the way, have ADHD. She's put together a parliamentary group, whole bunch of them, psychiatrists, psychologists, paediatricians, yada, yada, yada. And they're going to change the rules and they've got the backing to change the rules. They've had the Minister uh, the, of Health involved. They've got a groundbreaking commitment to six transformative actions that will change the special authority process. In other words, they're fixing a problem. So at the very least, she guarantees important evidence-based changes coming to ADHD diagnosis and prescription for those who will come after her. So if you do, and that's what I like about being an MP and politicians, that's the practical stuff. Say, talk all you want about climate change and the highfalutin stuff that may or may not ever happen, but the good, cold, hard, cold face, bricks and mortar, bits and pieces that affect everyday New Zealanders' lives, if you can fix that stuff, then you're a winner in my book. Yeah. I mean, just getting people to accept that mental health is actually a real thing. It's not just, excuse the pun, in your head. Oh, my God. All right. Let's get that rolling. Now, Mike uh, wants to talk about the, now that we've got the GDP out of the way, and it wasn't what Mike said it was going to be, is the 
uh, official cash rate going to go up to something that he says and not what they say? Grant Robertson, if you remember back to Friday's programme, defended the Reserve Bank when I suggested to him that their forecast of 4.1% for the cash rate to top out wasn't real. He said, and I thought rightly, uh, that the same bank had forecast the GDP figure last week at one8 which was very close to being right, while most of the rest of us, of course, were wrong. Therefore, if they had seen that growth and were still suggesting 4.1 was it, why don't we believe them? Which, I mean, it's not an unreasonable point, apart from the fact it's wrong. Now, the ANZ, and they won't be the last, have seen what most of the rest of us have seen, and they're now calling 4.75. It's not 4.1 at all, it's 4.75. 4.1 can't be it, because what the bank has done so far, i.e. 50-point rise after 50-point rise, to take us to 3% currently, the mortgages hitting the sixes, has achieved what? What it's achieved is 1.7% growth in GDP. So we paid no attention, in other words. We've kept spending, we've booked the air travel, we've ordered the cars, we've gone and paid six bucks for coffee, and we've done this because we've all wandered off to the boss or the union, got a pay rise, and an absurd one at that. We aren't making any more or doing any more. We just held our hand out after threatening to walk across the road for another job that paid more. And it paid more because there is no labour because of the damn borders. So with our new wages, we kept on pretending we weren't in trouble. It will end. It always ends. It can't not end. It's just a matter of how badly it ends. They call a bad ending a hard landing. The Reserve Bank and banks all over the world are trying to do the same thing at the moment, a soft landing, and they are failing. And the more money they printed during the COVID, the harder the trick is they're trying to pull off because no one printed more money per head of population than we did, bar America. We're in a mess. We just don't want to face it. And the mad wage grab is hiding the truth that's coming. 4.75, if the ANZ are right, is mortgage money well into the sevens. And if you think there is another double-digit wage rise coming next year to fix all of that, you're dreaming. The government's out of money and your employer's fast running out as well. We are living basically in a giant buy-now-pay-later scheme. And sadly for the government, the year of reckoning is election year. Like I always say, all these things, numbers, statistics, they just make my head go round and round and round. Especially when people are talking about who's likely to... Do what in an election that's not happening until late next year? Poll out Friday, unfortunate day for a poll to come out, Talbot Mills, basically it backed up the Curia poll of last week as well. They basically tell the same story. National up a bit to 38, Labour down a bit to 35, Act 9, Greens 8, Maori 3, uh, 38% for Adun, 26 for Luxon. Both those numbers are pretty steady as well. Right track, wrong track. 44, 49, 49% of us thinking the country's on the wrong track, 44. That's not as dramatic as the Courier poll. But those are a couple of polls in the same week that pretty much tell the same story. And the story they tell is the government is in a world of pain. Right, now we've got all the meaningless numbers out of the way. Let's talk sport. Is it sexist or is it just us? Yeah, maybe it's just us who are sexist. Now, the question around gender and sport is do we want to debate this honestly? all with the go-to mechanism of the age wokeness and denial. We've got a study from the University of Technology in Sydney published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine arguing that scheduling of major sporting events is sexist. Treating women's finals as a warm-up event to the men's sends a message they're second-class citizens. Very emotive sort of stuff, this. Now, the key weakness in their argument is best exemplified by one of their examples. They say at the 2016 Olympics, the Rio Olympics, 25 hours of competition were scheduled for men's events on the Sunday of primetime viewing versus two for the women. The key words there I would have thought are prime time. The argument over pay and reward can be added to this debate as well as you'd like. And, and what the people who do these studies never want to say or admit is sport at the highest level has a very open, honest and structured criteria. Those who earn the most get the most, and that applies to funding, wages and time on the telly. Scheduling based on gender 
like paying based on gender, is a falsehood because what the public wants pays the bills. Occasionally, women's sport does brilliantly. Of course, the England women's football team and the Euros brought the nation to a standstill. I think we'll take as a nation any medal at an Olympic Games, doesn't matter what the gender is, but professional sport generally is paid for by ticket sales, bums on seats and broadcast rights. And broadcast rights are paid for based on the numbers that watch. We watch more men's sport than women's. Will that change? Could it change? Hopefully so, but for now it hasn't. See, we asked Sky TV recently for ratings around the Black Ferns Australia Games. It took them two days to drum up the most tragic press release I've seen in a while, a full page that said essentially nothing and certainly didn't contain the answer to the simplest of questions, how many people watched. And they didn't tell us, well, they tried to fudge it because guess what? The numbers aren't that good. Yes, girls seeing women play will help. Yes, women winning will help. But as we grow these sports, let's try and be a little bit honest, shall we, about the realities and what funds them. A men's final is scheduled after a women's final because of the bottom line, because of the numbers, because of the facts. That's what pays the bill, not academics arguing a gender ideology. I guess the question you could ask is if the Silver Ferns were playing a test and the men's netball team were playing, the representative men's netball teams were playing each other, would it suddenly get rescheduled around the other way just because the men's teams were playing? Probs not. I'm Glenn Z. Thank you for scheduling me. See you back here again tomorrow for more.